If you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. At my church, we are preaching through the Gospel of John. Uh, Tyler and Oscar, how long do I have? Don't give me the shrug. Uh, 45? Great. All right. Don't give me the shrug, Tyler, because I'll, uh, I'll take all of that uh, as much as I can. But <laughs> John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. If I could ask you guys to please stand with me as we read God's Word. Um, as I read it out loud and you follow along in your Bibles. John chapter 1, verse 35 to 42. All right, if you're there, say amen. John chapter 1, verse 35 says this. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the reading of God's holy word, and God's people say, Amen. You may be seated. Derek Seavers conducted a TED Talk in 2010 entitled, How to Start a Movement. It's a curious title, right, if you're interested in starting a movement. He started this TED Talk and he emphasized in this speech the importance of something called first followers. First followers. And in this uh, illustration of first followers, he showed a video of a man dancing at a concert. This man was dancing in a very foolish way. He was in this open, grassy area where people were sitting at a concert, and he was the only one dancing like an idiot. He was dancing and flailing his arms about, and uh, he wanted others to, to dance along with him. But as he was dancing by himself, and as people were looking at him like he was crazy, one person joined him and started dancing with him. And after that, you had two people dancing like idiots. And after that... As people saw two people dancing, another person joined in and started dancing. And another person started joining in and dancing. And then all of a sudden you had 10 more and 20 more until the entire camera was filled with people dancing that you couldn't count them in number. It started with one person and it led to being, as he called it, a movement. And so his whole point, Derek Sievers was making, is that first followers are important when it comes to starting a movement. They have an important role. He says this at the end of his speech. I'm quoting him. He says, if you find a lone nut doing something great, have the courage to be the first one to stand up and join in. Apparently, it is very difficult. As if, it's, if it's hard to be a leader, it is very hard to be a leader, um, it is hard to be the first follower of that leader as well. 
And I think there's some merit to this, right? There's some truth to being a first follower where, um, you know, leaders need to be validated. Leaders, when they start a movement or they're first to the market, they need validation from people. And if they don't get followers, there really is no validation. Well, we look at our passage that we've read in verses 35 to 42 of, of John is the first followers of Jesus Christ. But these first followers were not following a lone nut. They were not following a lunatic, as some people have labeled Christ to be. They were following the Lord of this universe. They were following Jesus Christ himself. And so this is the God-man, this is the Messiah, starting his public ministry. And what we are reading in verses 35 to 42 is the first disciples following the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to study for today is the fact that as we see this account of the first disciples, we're not just merely seeing the start of a movement. And don't we see all the time in Christianity people wanting to start a movement? People wanting to bring revival to the church, trying to change the way the church is and trying to make a movement for Christ. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. But what we, I think, have lost uh, track of in even the church today is the simple act of discipleship. That if you really want to start a movement, if you really want to change the church, if you really want to make the church healthy, you want to focus on discipleship. And that's what we learned from the first followers of Jesus here today. And so we're going to look at this in three parts. Um, we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with his first disciples and how they, they show us as Christians how to or what it means to be disciples of Jesus today. And so we're going to look at this in verses 35 to 37, following Jesus. And then secondly, in 38 to 39, abiding with Jesus. And then verses 40 to 42, telling of Jesus. And so following Jesus, abiding with Jesus, and telling of Jesus. So look with me in verses 35 to 37. But uh, to build some context, in this part of John, John has just finished the introduction of the incarnate Son of God in verses 1 to 18. And as verses 19 start, he starts this uh, account of the testimony of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was this um, guy who was telling or, or paving the way for Jesus Christ's ministry. And so the theme of John is, is that people would read this book and believe in Jesus. And in believing in the name of Jesus, they would find life in believing his name. And that's the book of John and the point of John. And, and in the beginning of chapter 1 in, in, in our section here, John's testimony is telling of Jesus Christ. He, he tells in, in verses uh, 29 to, thir- uh, to 30 of this Lamb of God who has appeared. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is also the Lamb of God in verses 30 to 31 who is this exalted Messiah. The predicted Messiah of the Old Testament is the one who, who John the Baptist has told of. And that predicted Messiah is also the Messiah who brings the Spirit in verses 32 to 33, the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. He says that Jesus is so close to the Holy Spirit that he gives the Spirit so that the Spirit can bring believers into the body of Christ so that the, 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 the people of God would be in an intimate relationship with the Spirit of God. And then he ends in verse 34 by saying he is also the Son of God the one closest to God, the one who exemplifies the nature of God best in this world. And he goes on to our section in verses 35 to 37 by uh, 
calling his first disciples. And so if you look at verses 35 to 37, we're going to look at first following after Jesus. Look at verse 35. It says, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. Verse 35 starts off with this time marker where it is the third day of John's testimony in this sequence. This is the third day of John testifying of Jesus. And what we see is this type of scene change, a transition um, from John to Jesus. We don't actually see John mentioned until chapter 3 after this. Uh, But John here, as some commentators put it, as he is this type of curtain raiser. I don't know if you've been to a musical lately, especially in the midst of the pandemic. My wife and I used to love going to musicals. We would go to Pantages Theater and, um, you know, watch Wicked, watch uh, Phantom of the Opera. Maybe you've gone to see Hamilton and stuff. Um, It would be so foolish for you to go to see a musical and look at the curtain and be like, wow, um, that's a beautiful curtain. And, uh, And just go home after that. No one does that. No one pays 80, 100, what is it, $200 now per, per musical ticket just to go and look at the curtain. The curtain is supposed to raise and highlight the main event, right? That's the whole point of the curtain raiser. And, and so commentators call John this type of curtain raiser. He's the trailer before the movie. He is the, uh, not the, he's the opening act, not the main act. Jesus Christ is the main act. Jesus Christ is the center of attention. And so his whole point is to turn his disciples and turn all of the attention from him to Jesus Christ. And so he does that. He does that. And and Jesus is is walking by him as he's starting his ministry in, in verse 36. And what do you say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And we've seen this verse in verse 29. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if you were a Jewish person reading this in the book of John, you would think about the Old Testament. You would think of the Passover lamb. You would think of Isaiah 53 and how the lamb would be sacrificed for the atonement of the sins of God's people, that they would be forgiven, that they would be cleansed, that they would be in a right relationship with God. But the Jewish people also thought of the lamb of God as the Messiah, the one who would come back to conquer, the one who would come back to 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 destroy his enemies and who would succeed and bring victory and the kingdom upon the earth. And we even see that in Revelation, that the Lamb of God would be victorious. And so that mixed picture is in John's statement where he says, Behold the Lamb of God, not to the Jews, as it was in the previous section, but to his disciples. And what does his disciples do? Well, they turned and they saw. And uh, the two disciples heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. What does that mean? That means that John the Baptist did his job. That means that John the Baptist was willing to turn over his own disciples rather than building his own empire and following. I'm sure he loved having disciples around him to teach the Bible, but he knew that His role was to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, and his role was to pave the way for the Messiah and to point to Jesus. And so them as good disciples listened to John and followed after Jesus because John was not about building his kingdom. And oh, are we not always about, as in terms of our human nature, what we see today, people are all about building their kingdom. After every YouTube video, what do you see? Please like, subscribe. 
Everyone wants to build the numbers in terms of the church, which isn't inherently wrong, but we want to see big numbers, big subscribers, big followings, all the attention, uh, and that's, that's human nature in terms of our pride to, to grow and want to grow our following, to puff ourselves up. But John was not like that. John knew that it was his role, that it was his job to turn over the attention from him to Jesus Christ. It seems like here that these people were, or his the two disciples here, were abandoning him for someone more popular. Saying, oh, Jesus is, is up and coming, and uh, I'm just going to go from John to, to him. No, they're actually being good disciples because they're believing in the teaching of John the Baptist. They're not like some of us today where we'll just abandon, you know, one celebrity says one thing, and uh, we say, and I don't want to follow him, I'll, I'll follow this other celebrity. Or one preacher says something we don't like, and we're going to follow the, the other preacher. Or this church, or our church do, does something that uh, we don't like, and so we're just going to move churches and change churches because we want to go with what's popular. That's not what they did. They were listening to John the Baptist, and they saw that he was pointing to Jesus, and they, were, they would follow after Jesus because that is what he taught them to do. And... If you want to think that he was disappointed over there, so he wasn't, he actually found joy. Look at John chapter 3. John the Baptist found joy in turning over his disciples to, to Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. It says this, You yourselves are my witnesses, and I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in John giving this illustration of why he finds joy in turning his disciples over to Jesus, he uses this illustration of a bride and groom getting married. And he puts himself in the position of being the best man, the friend of the groom. And many of you, some of you have been the best man at a wedding. Some of you have been the, the maid of honor. And what is your role as the best man and the maid of honor? Is to make sure your friends get married. Right? Make sure that the crazy uncle doesn't disrupt the wedding. Right? Make sure that the, if you're the groom, that the, 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 um, the, the groom gets actually get the, the, the rings, right? And don't lose the rings. Your job is not to mess up the wedding but that your friends would get married. And, and so John the Baptist looks at himself and he says, that is my role. I am the friend of the groom and I, am, I want my, the, the, the followers of Jesus to be married to Jesus and I'm not supposed to get in the way of that. And he says, I find joy when I see people follow Jesus. And all saints of Hacienda, my question to you today is, do you find that same joy with John the Baptist? Do you find joy in terms of your discipleship of one another, helping each other follow Jesus? Do you guys find joy when you're at the source in Buena Park, helping others follow Jesus? Is there joy in that? Or maybe you should take it a step back and say, do you even find joy in following after Jesus? Because that is what John the Baptist had in terms of pointing others to, to Christ. Literally, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 35 to 37, they followed after him, meaning they literally walked after him, both in words and in actions, and they turned their allegiance to Jesus that day. And that's really the first steps to genuine discipleship, right? Following after Jesus. And so simply put, um, who are you following today? 
Because there's a lot of things that even as Christians we are tempted to follow in terms of philosophies, um, idols, um, figures that are very influential um, in this world. Uh, and we're tempted to follow many things. And I hope and pray that you are following after Jesus and that you uh, have joy in pointing others to following after Jesus. So that's the first one, following after Jesus in verses 35 to 37. Secondly, verses 38 to 39, abiding with Jesus. Look at verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Let's stop right there. Jesus sees the disciples after John the Baptist tells them, behold, the Lamb of God. The disciples start to follow after Jesus and pursue after him. Jesus sees them coming and he asks them this question, what do you seek? And it's so easy for us to, you know, glaze past this question just thinking that Jesus is asking just a, 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 just a general question, but this is actually a very pointed heart question. If you look in the rest of John, whenever Jesus asks this type of question to someone, he's asking them to reveal their heart motives. It's a revelatory question. It's something that reveals what's on their mind. So he's not, he's not seeing if they're, uh, if they're lost or if they need directions, right? Sometimes... Um, you know, I can get uh, some, some shy, introverted tendencies even at Target where I just don't want them to talk to me. I just want to get my stuff and get out, right? And so I'll just, I'll just look, grab for my stuff and be like, oh, do you need something? Are you lost? Like, no, I'm not lost. Please stop talking to me. Um, um, and, and, you know, we, when we look at this, we're like, is, is, is Jesus just asking them? You know, they need directions or, you know, are they lost or trying to do small talk? That's not what he's asking. What he's really asking is a pointed heart question that is asking something like this, what do you truly seek in life? Or, what do you truly want me to do for you? Because he sees them wanting to follow after him. He sees them interested in his teaching. And so what he does is, he confronts their heart and their motivations, and he demands that they articulate exactly what they want from him. And so he says, what do you really want in life? And this is such a great question that we should ask ourselves, because this is a question that I think Jesus asks us at every stage in life. With every crossroad, with every change, with every trial, with every decision that we have to make, I think Christ always, he asks us all the time, what do we really want Jesus to give to us? What are you really looking for? And I'll ask that to you. Do you want Jesus to give to you health? We're in a society that's talking about health and, um, you know, um, sickness and, and, and not being sick anymore. Do you, do you want uh, peace in your life where there's, there are normal problems, no more, no more suffering? Are you looking for friends because you feel like you're, you're lonely and you, you don't have anyone to go to? Maybe you're looking for relationships and love and you want to start a family. You're looking for uh, working up the corporate ladder and succeeding at your job. There are so many things, even as Christians, that we have our minds on and our eyes on. And Jesus asked this question, what are you really looking for? What do you want me to give to you, he says. And he asked them of this question, which is an important uh, question that they need to answer. And what did they say? Verse 38, they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying 
So they start off with this common term of honor, polite address, rabbi, which shows that maybe they want, might have wanted to uh, have been taught by him. But their answer is, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And the, it, does, it sounds like they're avoiding the question, but they're not really avoiding the question. Them asking him where he is staying is actually asking him for a private audience. You know, in that setting, it might not have been the best setting for them to go through the Old Testament and start to debate theology. It might have been in public. They might have been at a Starbucks or something. And, uh, you know, they just, they wanted to be in, in person with Jesus to ask him more intimate questions in a more intimate setting. And so they wanted this in, uninterrupted explanation. And how does he respond to them asking, where are you saying? Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And this is the best answer that they could get, right? They wanted to just have this short dialogue or interaction with him where they thought he was just going to answer their questions. And he says, no, you can come over for coffee. You can come stay at my house. You can be here where I'm um, residing. And, and so he invites them. They come immediately. They find more about his teaching, I'm sure they, they spent a lot of time talking about the Old Testament, talking about his claims to be Messiah, talking about his ministry, and talking about the forgiveness of sins. They talked about all those things, and it says at the end of verse 39, so they came and saw where he was saying, staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. There's a lot of debate as to why... John had included the term the tenth hour. And so whether you're going against the Roman or Jewish system, if it's Roman, it's a reference to 10 a.m. If it's the Jewish system, it's a reference to 4 p.m. But what's the point of, of putting the exact hour here at this point? Well, I think the significance here is that this encounter with Jesus was so important, so influential, and so significant that they remembered it down to the specific hour. We're going to look at how one of these disciples was Andrew. The other one we actually don't know. And some have speculated that John the Apostle, who the writer of this book, might have been that other unknown disciple. And that he was so influenced by the conversation with Jesus that day that he remembered it down to the hour. Because that's what we do with significant life events, right? I remember that I was married to my wife on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m. You know why? Because people complained to me that they had to go to a wedding at 9 a.m. And I did it because, one, I wanted to save money, right? Um, two, I just couldn't wait to get married to my wife, right? And so I wanted to get married as soon as possible. And so if you had to wake up early in the morning to come out to my wedding, that's fine. But I remember it was at 9 a.m. Because that's what you do with significant life events. You remember them down to the hour. Some of you remember the exact moment that you got saved. Some of you remember that, that exact moment you graduated from that school where you spent you know, so much time and effort in getting those grades. Some of you remember that job, the hour that you got that job that you really wanted because we remember those moments that are so significant to us. And John and the disciples remember that it happened at this time, the 10th hour, where they decided to follow after Jesus. The whole point is that they remained for a great amount of time. Because when you are a disciple of Jesus, that is what discipleship is defined by. Remaining with Jesus. That's why I titled the second point, Abiding with Jesus. Because discipleship, simply put, is just that. Abiding with Jesus. 
Discipleship is being with Jesus. You want proof? John chapter 15, the famous passage on uh, Jesus the vine and how we who are the branches cannot bear fruit or do anything if we are apart from the vine. I'm just going to read two verses and note how many times he says abide, which is to remain, to be with Jesus. John chapter 15 verse 4 says, Abide in me, Jesus is speaking, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For, uh, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I love this passage, saints, because this is such a reminder that we as Christians and we as disciples, the whole point of our lives is to be with Jesus. That is why we accepted the gospel. That's why when when someone preached to us about this this God-man who lived a perfect life, who died the sacrificial death, who raised from the dead uh, three days later, who ascended into heaven, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, this God-man who offers salvation, when they preached that gospel to us, we accepted, responded by the grace of God because we wanted to be with that Savior. We wanted to abide with Him and be united with Him because that is Christianity. When I married my wife, I married my wife so that I could be with her. You know, and, and, and all the married people say, amen, right? Because that's why you married your spouse, so that you could be with them. It would have been so foolish for me if I married my wife, and the day or the moment after my wedding said, I'm going to just treat you the same way that Christians treat Jesus. I'll see you at Christmas. I'll see you on Easter. So just maybe two times a year. Um... I will talk to you for five minutes a day, and I'm going to listen to you whenever I want to. How, you know, she wouldn't want to be with me after that, right? That's exactly what Christians do with Jesus. Two times a year, coming to be in the local church that they have covenanted together to be with. Praying for five minutes a day. Listening to Jesus through his word only when they feel like it. Saints, we would never, ever do that with our physical, literal blood families. Yet we do that for some reason with the Christ that has saved us. When the whole point of Christianity is to what? To abide with Jesus. Jesus saved us that we would be with him. And if you go back to chapter 1, this is why Christ died so that we would be with him. And the, the disciples, I'm sure, had many questions, right? You, know, you wonder what exactly they talked about. I'm sure they asked him a lot of questions that had a lot of confusion, but they knew exactly where the answer was. And where was it? It remained with Jesus. The answers remained with Jesus. And so I don't know, as individuals, I don't know where you stand right now. I don't know exactly what you're struggling with in terms of your walk with Christ. If you right now are, are shaky with your faith and you, faith and you struggle with doubt and you struggle with being tempted to, to run away from Christ and run away from the church, just know this. These disciples with all their questions, they knew that the answer was with Jesus. And I want to encourage you today is to remain with Jesus. 
in the midst of your questions, in the midst of your doubt, these disciples knew that the answers to their questions remained with Jesus. And so please, I beg you, stick with Christ. He will answer your questions. He will deal with your troubles. He will help your anxieties. Stay with Jesus. And um, it's tempting, right? It's tempting to drift uh, from discipleship. And we see this as an example in John chapter 6, verse 66. You don't have to turn there, but uh, I want to encourage you to guard your heart with all diligence because in this life we will be tempted to drift. In the sovereignty of God, we know that he will protect his people, but there are some who claim to follow Christ that don't follow Christ anymore only to prove that they were never truly disciples at all. And that's what John 6.66 talks about. That some who claimed to be disciples no longer remained with Jesus. And so remain with him. Follow Jesus. Abide with Jesus. And then in verses 40 to 42, tell of Jesus. Be the one who is telling of Jesus. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated, or which translated means Christ. So Andrew here is identified as one of the two disciples who came to sit under Jesus' teaching and remain with him. Andrew is um, the Apostle Peter's brother, which the people would have been familiar with uh, as they were reading this. He was a fisherman by trade, as we know in the Bible. He was a native of Galilee. And uh, Peter was known, uh, but Andrew was not as known. But Andrew is described as the one who brought Peter to Jesus. He is the first proclaimer of Jesus and the first one to bring someone to Jesus in private witness. What did Andrew simply do? He simply brought his brother to Jesus. A simple act that, that was very important. And he says, verse 41, we have found the Messiah, the anointed one from the Old Testament, the expected deliverer. Did Andrew know all the implications of that? Maybe not. But uh, he believed enough about this Messiah to tell others about this Messiah, and he simply started with his brother. And what we see here in terms of discipleship is the effectiveness of private witness, that Once Andrew knew who Jesus Christ was and encountered Jesus Christ, he just knew that he had to tell someone about this Jesus. Um, It really reminds us of whether or not we are actually privately witnessing with someone at this moment. Who are you privately witnessing? Because simply put, that is the start of discipleship. Someone cannot be a disciple uh, of Christ unless they are a follower of Christ. And so we need to tell others of this Christ to believe in the gospel, to repent of their sins and trust in him in faith and repentance and use this method of private witnessing. Um, And know what he did. He found first his brother and brought him uh, to Jesus. In verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. He didn't try to convince his brother. I'm sure like good brothers, they would argue and they would debate. I'm sure you never do that with your brother, right? Um, they, they, he didn't try to argue or debate. What did he do? He thought the best method to convince his brother of what he came to believe in was by bringing him to Jesus. Um, and the same is true for, for us today as disciples. The best method for convincing others to follow after Jesus is to bring them directly to Jesus. 
How do you do that? I mean, you can't physically see Jesus. He is everywhere, right? And he is within us, but we can't physically bring someone to Jesus. So how do we do that? We bring him to the Word. The Word of God is what explains and how Jesus Christ and how we come to know who this Christ, the Messiah, is. And so if you want to bring someone to Jesus, you bring them to Jesus in his word. And that's what we do in terms of our evangelism and our witness. And this was a great service that Andrew did because it led to Peter being this historical, foundational figure in the early church. Um, if you know your church history, uh, Peter was so influential, you know, as a knucklehead as he was, he, he grew in maturity by the grace of God to be so influential and so foundational to the early church. Um, and uh, it all started with his brother witnessing to him in private. A simple act led to this great, magnificent change in the local church. Uh, I have a friend right now who is pastoring at a church, and he's been pastoring for a few few years now. And he actually got saved at the church that he is pastoring. Uh, and that's interesting. You don't normally see that, where he was once an unbeliever, unsaved. Someone from his church invited him to a Bible study, simply invited him to a Bible study, and that's where he heard the gospel, and he found, and he 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 put his faith in Jesus Christ and repented of his sins. And then years later, as he grew and as, as the Lord matured him, he went to seminary and the, the church called him to be pastor. But what did that start with? Someone invited him to a Bible study. We don't, we don't know what type of effect our private witness will have on someone. That that person might be the next Jonathan Edwards or John Owen. It's Reformation Day, so I have to... Mentioned uh, reformer John Calvin, Martin Luther, right? You, you don't know what your private witness might do for someone. And you're thinking, I don't think they'll be like that. Okay, maybe not. But maybe they will grow into someone who is a faithful, contributing member of their local church and their family. Maybe your private witness of someone would just so that they would be saved and that, their, that the trajectory of their family lineage would be not of sin and idolatry, but would be changed to the trajectory of serving Christ and loving Christ and all because you privately witness to them. That God used you in your private witness. And so that is so important. That is so important in terms of us telling others of Jesus. And, and look, as, as Andrew brings his brother to Jesus, verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looks at him. He intensely stares at Simon and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Uh, Jesus gives him a stare down, uh, and he knows exactly who Peter is. He knows that um, some say that Peter was named Simon because of some Old Testament figures who were very impulsive in terms of their character. And uh, it's funny because he would turn out to be that same type of impulsive person, right? So he knew kind of this, this reckless knucklehead that, that Peter would be. And, and Jesus looks at Simon and looks at his character. He says, Simon, son of John, you from now on shall be called Cephas, which is also called Peter, which literally means rock. And so you're asking, well, why exactly did, did Jesus change his name to Peter or change his name to, to rock? Um, 
It could be a reference to different things, you know, depending on what you hold to in terms of Matthew 16, uh, in terms of Peter's confession, what the rock is. Some people think the rock is Christ, think it's Peter, think it's Peter's confession. Um, some people think it's related to Matthew 16. That's possible. Some people think it's related to his character uh, being rock-like. Um, the, the point is that Peter as a rock was a very foundational figure uh, in the early church. But this section is not to identify uh, what the name change means. But the section of verse 42 is all about the person who changes Peter's name. You get that? It's not about identifying what Peter's name change means, but it's about focusing and emphasizing on who changes Peter's name. And who is the one who changes Peter's name? It is Jesus. Jesus is the one who says, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Christ is the one who changes his name. Christ is the one, broadly speaking, makes people what he calls them to be. And the focus is on Jesus. And what does that say about us today? Is that Christ will change you to whom he wants you to be. He will change you to be who he wants you to be. Even though society wants you to be something, even though your parents want you to be something, your friends, social media, all these different things and influences in your life, they all want you to be something. Jesus says he will sanctify, mature, and use you, and he will change you to be who he wants you to be. And that's what's most important, right? And so when we think of discipleship, it is all about following after Jesus. It is about taking up our cross, suffering daily for the sake of Christ, knowing that it will be worth it in the end to follow after Jesus. Discipleship is about abiding with Jesus. The whole reason why we were saved was not just a get-out-of-hell-free card was so that we could remain and abide with our Savior in a love relationship for all of eternity. But it's not just following and abiding, but it's also telling others that they can experience the same thing we are experiencing today, that they can have forgiveness, that they can follow after him, they can abide with Christ. But they won't know that unless you tell others of this Jesus. And so I want to go back to that original question in, in point number two. What is it that you want the most in life? Because there's something right now that you want. There's something right now that you desire. There's something right now that you are most passionate about in this life, at this moment. And I just pray that that thing would be a person. And that person would be Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this section of Scripture where we have learned great lessons from the first disciples of Christ. That in discipleship, we are called to follow after you, to abide with you, and to tell of you in our lives and in all that we do and say. And so I pray for Hacienda. I pray that you would bless them, Lord, as a church, that they would be faithful disciples that even though we fall short as disciples and that we sin constantly with our remnant sin, we are reminded that our Savior has covered such sins and that there is grace to cover the sins of the future. 
And that causes us, Lord, not to embrace the sins of the past, but to abide with you and to follow after Christ in his word. And so be with these saints, Lord. Be with this church as they continue to serve you and serve Christ in this community. And bless them tremendously. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.